0: Welcome to an exclusive recording of The Shepherd's Path, the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, taught by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif, rahimahullah, in July of 2008. This episode is brought to you by online, on-demand courses. Your chance to study in-depth at your own pace. Each course consists of enriched, on-demand video lessons, bonus sessions with expert guest speakers... Live Q&A sessions with Al-Maghrib's instructors and an exclusive student portal. All available with lifetime access so you can brush up on every subject again and again and again. With over 300 hours of studio quality courses produced and plenty more to come. Inshallah, Al-Maghrib Online gives you knowledge that you can carry over a lifetime. Okay, this, this is the letter that the Prophet Sallallahu sent to Hiraqat. Letter that the Prophet ﷺ sent to Hiraqal. We mentioned about this, nations invited to Islam. So during these two years, some of the battles took place, Khaybir took place during this time, a lot of war spoils were compiled, and at this same time, the Quraysh were fighting Abu Jandal, Abu Basir. So during these two years, so many people became Muslim, and then comes the conquest of Mecca. One of the uh, the amazing lessons of leadership of the Prophet Wasallam. if someone became Muslim, let's suppose the letter that was sent to the governor of Bahrain was al Mundhir ibn Sawah. He became Muslim and the Prophet Wasallam maintained him as the leader of his people. So this is what, you know, the, the leaders fear for their leadership. Right? They don't want to come down. So if they became Muslim, the Prophet wouldn't say to them, you know, great, you're now Muslim, now get off your throne, we're going to put a righteous Muslim in your place. That wasn't the situation. It's the same leader, he becomes Muslim, and now he's the leader of his people, guiding them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So al ibn Sawa is one example of the people that stayed Muslim, and was Muslim and maintain leadership position. This pleased the leaders and it pleased their people that you know a foreign leader didn't come in and become leader just because their leader became Muslim. And this is the seal of the Prophet. When we said seal of the Prophet, there's the seal behind his back, right? Which is like a someone was asking the question that what is it like? And it's it's like a birthmark. It's like a birthmark on the back of the Prophet between his shoulder blades that's kind of like in the shape of an egg. It's a seal of the Prophet. Something like that can't be faked. You can't fake a birthmark. And so, this is one of the signs that there would be like a seal on the back of his neck. So, when we say seal of the Prophet, what we're talking about here is not the thing that was on his back. This seal, when the Prophet was writing letters to the kings, it was said that the, the kings don't accept any letters unless it has a seal. Like a ring, right? You, you, um, you burn it in wax and then you press it onto, onto the letter and then it'll burn into the letter and then it will, you know, that wax will burn. It's a seal. And so the Prophet وسلم, took a ring that said Muhammad Rasulullah and whenever a letter had been written he would seal it with this ring So that's the seal of the Prophet There's a difference of opinion about wearing rings and people are like, well, the prophets of the had a seal, and everybody's thinking, well, I might need to seal letters to kings myself, so uh, I need a ring too. So Allah alam, you know, if you're not in a position like that, then you don't really need a ring. There's the issue of when you're married and wearing a ring on your left finger. Should I get into that? No, I won't get into that one. <laughs> Let's just say, let's just say that if you search that in the Quran and Sunnah, you will find no proof for that. And for the, uh, for more information, you you can go to the Fiqh of Love, Inshallah Ta'ala, al-Maghrib seminar, and find out what Islam says about wearing rings on your left finger. Okay, so we'll let that go. (laughs) Okay, the eighth year of Hijrah, eighth year of Hijrah. It was the conquest of Mecca. Now, the Muslims had a treaty with the, the people of Mecca, and the treaty is a 10-year treaty, 10-year peace treaty. So if they wrote the treaty in the Hudaybiyah 6, so basically the treaty should end six, in, in 16 years after hijrah. Why two years after what happened in two years? During this time, as we said, they're compiling all these war spoils and so on. Then, remember there was two tribes. I mentioned their names. They were Benu bakr and Benu. Khuza, that's right. Banu Khaza and Banu Bakr. So these two tribes had, Khuzah had joined with the Prophet, in the treaty. So they were in peace with, against Banu Bakr. Now, Banu Bakr, Quraysh, assisted Banu Bakr. Now that there's all this, people have lowered their guard, and so on. Then they said, now's our chance to, like, take revenge for all those wars before. They've let down their guard, and so on and so forth. So, Banu Bakr attacked Banu Khaza. They ambushed them, and they had uh, murdered and killed a whole group of Banu khuzaa and, and Banu khuzaa raced. They were running away from them, and they raced into the Haram Sanctuary, the Meccan Sanctuary. And, and they said, they were calling out to the people of Mecca. They are saying like, Ya Nawfal, uh, was like the tribes there. They said, you know, save us, save us, you know, Al-Haram, Al-Haram. They were saying that, you know, the sanctuary, the sanctuary... And, uh, you know, your lord, this is a sanctuary, it's forbidden for these people to fight inside the sanctuary. And then Quraysh said to Khuzah, they said, there's no lord for you today. Like, tonight there's no lord for you. And then they said to Banu Bakr, they gave them permission, they said, go ahead and, you know, take back, you know, your revenge. So Banu Bakr, they executed Banu Khuzah, a group of them, inside Mecca. And they had broken the treaty. There was one of the people that survived that ambush, and his name was Amr ibn Salam. Amr ibn Salam, taking no rest, he immediately took off from that area and went to the Prophet. So, from Medina, you're talking within a few days, he was in Medina, not resting. Abu Sufyan realized that they had broken the treaty. Now they're in big trouble. Quraysh had joined Banu Bakr and they had attacked Banu Khuzah and they had broken the treaty. So Abu Sufyan's thing was, let me go to Medina and before he finds out about what happened and renew the treaty. So a new treaty be sealed. And then if he tries taking us to account for the old treaty, we'll use it against him and we'll say, no, we've already signed a new treaty. So Abu Sufyan is on his way to Medina and Amr ibn, ibn Salim is already basically on the way to Medina and he arrived in Medina before Abu Sufyan did. Amr ibn Salim, when he arrived in Medina, he came in, obviously he's been ambushed, he hasn't rested, within a few days he's arrived, traveled all this time and day and night to come to Medina and he arrives into the masjid. Where is the Prophet? Wa he's in the masjid with his companions. All of a sudden Amr ibn Salim comes in and he announces to the prophets of Eliassim what happens and he says it with poetry like this poetry you know this poetry will give you chills at how amazing the poetry is he tells him everything that took place and he says it to him in poetry he said he says i just give you a few lines of it he said ya rabbi inni nashidu Muhammadah hilfa abina wa abihil al atlada qad kuntum waladan wa qad kunna walida thumma taslamna falam nanzia fanṣur nasarak naṣran abada wa ad'u Allahi ya'tu madada fihim rasul allah qad tajarrada abyad mithla badri yasmū ṣa'da انسيم خسف وجهه تربدا في فيلك قنك البحر يجري مزبدا إن قرايش أخلفوك الموعدا ونقضوا ميثاقك المؤكدا وجعلوا فيك كداء Rasada وزعموا أن لست تدعو أحدا وهم أذل وأقل عددا هم بيئون Hujada هجدا وقاتلون ركعا وسجدا. when he finished this poetry. The Prophet ﷺ stood up and he said Nusirtaya ya amr bin salam. He said you have been granted support o Amr bin Salam. Now the lines of poetry I'll just I'll just mention a a, cu- a couple of the lines like I said the lines of poetry are not empty lines every one of them is explaining the story and what took place and what Quraysh did and so on and so forth. So of the lines of poetry, he says, Ya Rabbi, O my Lord, inni nashidu Muhammadah." I'm calling upon Muhammadah, hilfu abina wa abihil atlada, that the hilf, the one who had signed an agreement, like a peace treaty, with our fathers. And then he's saying, thammat aslamna, we, you know, we became Muslim, falamna nanzi'yada, we, you know, we submitted the treaty and became Muslim and we didn't pull back our hands from this treaty he said, so grant victorious to us and support us. May Allah support you. And call the slaves of Allah that they would come in cavalry. And Rasulullahi And he's now he's praising the Prophet. Amongst this cavalry is the Messenger of Allah, Abiyad al Wajhi, Like in his face illuminated in that procession. And then he continues, he says, Inna That Quraysh has broken their treaty with you. Wa and the mithaq, the covenant that you have with them, they have torn it apart. Fi rasada, an lasta ahada, and they claim that you won't call anybody. Wa adada, and they're more or less and more disgraced. Right? Then the companions of the Prophet وسلم, they're so small and so few num- numbers, هُمْ at, at night in Watir, Watir was the area where they were attacked and ambushed. He said, they killed us and ambushed us during the night in Watir. وَقَتَلُونَ wa sujada. And they killed us while, while we were in Ruku'a and Sujood. Like how amazing is that poetry? And the Prophet وسلم, stood up, he said نُسِرْتَ Granted victory. And so now the Prophet didn't he told the people to prepare for battle. He didn't mention the direction that they would come. And Abu Sufyan came to Medina and and in Medina he was like, you know, oh, we love the peace treaty and we'd love to continue and so on. And the Prophet just cold shouldered him and didn't speak to him. And Abu Sufyan is like, nobody's giving him respect. Abu Sufyan realized, you know, something's going on here. You know, maybe that the news had actually reached the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, whenever he would go out for battle, he wouldn't tell anybody the direction that he was going in. But knew, some people knew, so Hatib, there was one of the companions named Hatib. He sent a letter to the people of Mecca saying that Muhammad is coming to attack you. Right, so this is like spy stuff. He sent a letter, the Prophet sent Ali radiallahu anhu and sent Zubair anhu. This met a radiallahu anhu as well. He had sent this letter with a woman and she was like hiding it. She was going to Mecca to pass this message on to the people of Mecca that Muhammad was going to attack them. And so so that they would prepare for it. And so the Prophet sent, Jibreel told him, And he told Ali and Zubair to go, there will be a woman in such and such a place and she will have a letter, take the letter from her. And so they went and they raced out. They met the woman, just like the Prophet said in this area. And they said, give us the letter. She said, I don't have the letter. And they said to her, they said, you're lying because the Prophet said that you have it. She said, I don't have it. They said, we will strip you and take it from you unless you give it to us. And she was like, you know, they're telling the truth. And she gave them the letter. So they took and they went back to the Prophet. The Prophet وسلم, called Hatib Radiallahuan. Hatib said to the Prophet, وسلم, he said, don't uh, don't be hasty. The reason Hatib Radiallah had done that, he said that the Muhajirin, many of them had families in Mecca, and their families are part of tribes. But Hatib has family in Mecca as well, and he was afraid that if a battle took place, they would kill his family. And so he did this so that, the Prophet, so that his family possibly would be spared if he sent this letter. And he said, Ya Rasulullah, I didn't do it out of hypocrisy. And so at that time, Umar radiallahu asked the Prophet wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, give me permission to execute this munafiq. And the Prophet wasallam said no. He said no and he said... Hatib anhu was one of the people who witnessed Badr. He was part of the army in Badr. And he said, he said to Umar anhu, he said, how do you not know that perhaps Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looked down at the people of Badr those who had attended Badr and said do whatever you wish for verily I have forgiven you. And Umar anhu, he started crying and he said Allah and his messenger know best. And he stu- stood back. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verses, this is in Surah Mumtahana, verse 1, la wa aduwakum awliya. O you who believe, don't take my enemies and your enemies as close, sincere friends. In the conquest of Mecca, the Prophet وسلم came when they did uh, come for the conquest of Mecca, they had 10,000 fighters with them. And they came on the outskirts of Mecca and basically um, the people inside Mecca, they can do it, they can fight. The Muslims have now all these years, these two years, they've prepared, they have a lot of wealth and there's actually um, a success principle. I'm just going to go through the success principle, success principles and show you kind of like a connection to it. If you want to stop something, this can apply for business or your health or so on and so forth, step number one is you stop the poison. Okay. Just write it down, and then I'll explain it. Stop the poison, number one. Number two is you detox, detoxify, and cleanse. And number three, you give the body what it needs. So if your body's being poisoned, let's suppose you drank shampoo, right? Your body's being poisoned. You drank head and shoulders or something like that, right? (laughs) Step number one, you need to stop the poison. So you're not at the hospital, and when the doctor turns around, you take another sip of shampoo. And you keep drinking it because you want to get high on the shampoo or something like that. If someone's trying, you know, they have cancer or something like that, but yet they can't stop smoking. They're like, oh, I'm sick, I'm sick. And then they go and smoke. How are they ever going to become healthy like that? Correct? You have to first stop the poison. Stop the poison first. There's a, there's a, interesting, anybody? Malaysia, Indonesia? Any Malaysian Indonesians? Okay, cool. In Malaysia and Indonesia, as the brother knows, they love to smoke, correct? <laughs> yes. So they, in, when they come for Hajj, sometimes they come for Hajj and they all wear, and I think it's China as well, everybody's wearing these gas mask things on, on their faces. So this is the, the most strangest of, of, of scenes that I've seen. There's a brother, um, he'd come to Medina and he's walking around with a gas mask and stuff like that, those surgical masks. Because he's afraid some airborne thing is going to come in and like stick him in the mouth or something. Like that. So he's walking around, and I see him open up the mask and take a puff of a cigarette. <laughs> and put the mask on. And I'm like, why are you wearing the mask? Are you afraid of you know, things coming in and poisoning you? Okay, so like, obviously hypocrisy. You have to stop the poison. Before you try healing, you've got to stop the poison. That's number one. Number two is detoxify and cleanse. After you stop the poison, you've got to give the time for the body to repair. Something like fasting, for example. When you get sick in the first day of Ramadan, second day of Ramadan, you know why you're getting sick? It's not the fasting that's making you sick. It's the coffee that came the day before you started fasting. You know, you you had the last supper last day, right? You (laughs) ate so much, so much, so much, so much, and now you start fasting. Of course, you're going to get sick. Because of the poison of yesterday, now it starts coming out. It'll come out on your skin. It'll come out on your, your eyeball. It'll come from every direction. Your body gets a chance to actually clean up. You've got to give a chance for your body. In Ramadan time, by about the fourth or fifth day, if you fast properly and you don't stuff yourself in, at suhoor and don't stuff yourself at iftar, which is very difficult for a lot of people, then you should become stronger by the fifth day. And the whole month you should be strong. That's like physically, scientifically It should take about that much time Five days for your body to detoxify If you don't stuff yourself If you stuff yourself Then you're not giving the chance for the body to detoxify You've stopped the poison, yes But the body's not detoxifying So you'll just get sicker and sicker and sicker Throughout the month of Ramadan The middle ten days That's when everybody gets knocked out Except the uncles that come to the front line of the masjid They don't get knocked out They're always there you know what I'm talking about, right? I don't, know you, I don't know if you guys are in that position. You guys are like, some of you are the ones that get knocked out in the middle 10 days. Too many iftar dinners you've been going to. The uncles, instead, you ask them what they eat for iftar. They'll say something like, we eat a little bit. And some of them will say, oh, you know what? We eat after tarawih because we want to have the energy for tarawih. The food's actually going to weaken you if you eat too much. So follow their diet, those uncles at the front, inshallah ta'ala, you'll be good throughout the whole month of Ramadan. The last 10 nights of Ramadan, the Prophet sallallahu would double his ibadah. So each portion of Ramadan, he's getting stronger and stronger in his ibadah. Not the way we do things where we're getting weaker or you don't want to get weaker. Okay, so that's number two, detoxifying, cleanse. Third one is give the body what it needs. And that's like nourishment. So if the body is detoxified after Ramadan and so on, these are times where a person goes on an exercise routine and starts eating healthy and all of these good things, your body can pick that up and become much stronger. Okay? Now this will apply for businesses as well. You need to stop the poison, you need to you know, hire proper employees and so stop hiring bad volunteers and all this stuff. Detoxifying cleanse, it can apply. I won't go into details of it, but let's look at the seed of the Prophet Number one, stop the poisoning. Where did the poison get stopped? With the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, all these battles was cut off. And then now they could focus, once the battles are taking place, they stopped that, they didn't have any debts. You know, you have economic prosperity that came to them and they've just cut things off from there. The detoxify and cleanse is this period of two years that the Muslims had of peace and things turned around and then giving the body what it needs... That's finally when the Muslims came in and conquered Mecca. And Islam came to the people. No no fight took place in the conquest of Mecca. Conquest of Mecca, they surrendered, and they became Muslim. Abu Sufyan had come. In Mecca was Al-Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet, and he brought Abu Sufyan. The Prophet was camping out at 10,000 fighters. And uh, Al-Abbas, anhu, brought Abu Sufyan to the Prophet, in the camp. He's walking with him. And Umar, anhu, is like standing in the the camp. And then he sees Abu Sufyan in the darkness. And then he's like, Allahu Akbar, Allah brought the enemy of Allah to me so I could kill him here. (laughs) And uh, and Al-Abbas said, no, don't kill him. I'm taking him to the process." So they actually raced to the Prophet, and Umar, radiallahu anhu, is right behind on his heels until he... You know, came in front of the Prophet and the Prophet told Umar, you know, just, just hold on. And Abu Sufyan, Abu Suf- the Prophet offered him to become Muslim. And then Abu Sufyan, is like, you I still don't know. And then Al-Abbas like, you know, elbows him, he's like, this is, it. you know, you're not going to get another chance here. And Abu Sufyan became Muslim. Now Abu Sufyan عنه, became Muslim and he actually defended the Prophet he took part in battles after that and he made poetry in defense of the Prophet wa And a battle that took place right after the conquest of Mecca was the Battle of Hunain, And Abu Sufyan was part of the Muslim army in that. Al-Abbas, anhu, the uncle of the Prophet, he told the Prophet wa sallam, that Abu Sufyan loves to show off. So give him something that he can show off. So the Prophet wa sallam, gave out a commandment that whoever goes into the house of Abu Sufyan is safe. They'll be granted amnesty. And then, you know, when, when Abu Sufyan went there, he said, Muhammad says that anybody who goes into my house is safe. Like, the sanctuary is my house. And then they're like, woe to you. He's like, we can't all fit in your house. And then the Prophet وسلم said, and whoever goes in their homes and closes their door, they're safe. Uh, sorry. The second one was, whoever goes to the Kaaba is safe. And... Again, that's still not enough space for everybody and they said whoever goes inside their homes and closes their door is safe and then they said that's enough for all of us. And basically they all surrendered and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam entered Mecca. The, the Muslims, there's like 10,000 fighters. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi the day before the conquest of Mecca, they lit all these bonfires. 10,000 Muslim fighters, 10,000 bonfires being lit all around Mecca. Everybody could see that fire for distances and distances. And they realized that the army of the Prophet ﷺ is right there, striking fear in their hearts, and that they would not choose to fight the Prophet ﷺ the next day. Next day the Prophet ﷺ entered Mecca, and some people said, This is the day that a slaughter is permissible at the Kaaba. And the Prophet ﷺ corrected them and he said, Hadayomun Mufihil He said, This is the day when the Kaaba is glorified. Right? This is the day the Kaaba is glorified. Wayoma Tuksafih al-Kaba, the day when the Kaaba is covered. And so they became Muslim, the people of Mecca. Abu Sufyan became Muslim, the people of Mecca became Muslim. And as he said, Wahi came to the Prophet Sallallahu became Muslim, Hind came to the Prophet became Muslim, Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl, he had escaped. There were certain people that were to be executed no matter what. they were war criminals. And they were to be executed, the Prophet said, even if they're holding on to the curtains of the Kaaba, they were to be executed. And Hind was amongst them, Ikrimah was amongst them, there are others amongst them. Ikrimah left, and his wife later on came to the Prophet and said, I'll speak to him, would you accept him as a Muslim? And the Prophet said, Yes. She went and she brought Ikrimah back to Mecca. He became Muslim. Actually, he was going on the water. It said that Akrimah went, actually he went to the sea and was going to go like Habasha and these areas. You know, they told him that if we get on in the water and it shakes and all of that, then we should, you know, call upon Allah. And then Ikrimah said that if Allah in my time of need, if only Allah can help me during my time of need, then at all times Allah can help me. And so Ikrima, Islam entered his heart and his wife came to him and she said, the Prophet said sallam, would accept you. When Ikrimah came back to the Prophet the Prophet told the companions that Ikrimah is coming to you as a muhajir and a mujahid. So don't curse his father. His father is Abu Jahl, right? So a person could easily make fun of his father and his father had done this and this and that. And his father died a kafir, a mushrik, and one of the, you know, the fir'aun of this ummah, Abu Jahl, But yet, Ikrimah came back the Prophet, and the Prophet accepted his Islam. He said, Ya Rasulullah, all the money that I've spent against Islam, he said, I will spend double that in support of Islam. And all the battles that I fought against Islam, I will fight double that in the way of Islam. And they proved true when the Prophet died, these people did not leave their Islam. Even though so many of the Arab tribes did, they were the ones who supported Islam, they were the leaders. There was a very interesting person. I was actually listening to a CD once and I heard it and and I told the brother I said rewind that I want to hear that again. And I said play because I want to make sure it was the same person. There is a person by the name of Abdullah ibn Saad ibn Abi Sarh. And you might be familiar with the story but I'll give you more to it. Uthman anh, who came to him and he said accept the Islam of Abdullah ibn Saad ibn Abi Sarh. The Prophet looked to the companions and looked back at him, and he didn't say anything. Uthman said again, accept his Islam, O Messenger of Allah. And the Prophet looked to the companions, didn't say anything, and looked back, and didn't say anything. Abdullah ibn Salim Abi Sarh was actually to be executed. He was one of the people to be executed. And then Uthman ﷺ asked him again, and the Prophet took his hand, he pledged allegiance to the Prophet and he accepted Islam. Then the Prophet turned to the companions and said, why didn't one of you get up and execute him? And they said, Ya Rasulullah, all you had to do was wink at us. <laughs> and he'd be dead. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Hadith, Ma kana li an yakuna al ayun. It's not for the Prophet to have the deceit of the eye. So it's like you're talking with someone who's like, hey, and then you're winking at your friend and you're like, hey, and you're, and you're lying with your eyes. Right? You're trying to say something to one person And you're playing another game with your eyes And, and, and saying something to other That's haram for a person to do It's haram The Prophet wasn't like that The reason I was rewinding it I said, is this Because I studied the history of the Khulafa Before I really studied the Seerah in depth So I knew that Abdullah ibn Sa'd Was one of the greatest Muslim generals in our history He was one of the greatest Muslim generals That the Muslims had and the list of Muslim generals, if you go through the list of the greatest of the Muslim generals, they are Khalid ibn al walid who just recently had become Muslim. Iqrimah ibn Abi Jahl, one of the greatest Muslim leaders. Amr ibn al aas is the one who went to Abyssinia to bring back the Muslims so that they could torture them and kill them and so on and so forth. You had <laughs> Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, one of the greatest Muslim leaders that they had. You had Amr ibn al-As, and you had Abdullah ibn Sa'd ibn Abi Sarh. all of these people, they were not necessarily, not necessarily the most righteous of the companions. They're not the most righteous. So you learn a very valuable lesson. It's a super-duper, duper, duper, duper valuable leadership lesson. The leader is not the most righteous in the community doesn't have to be the most righteous in the community. The leader is the one who has the most influential skills, has the greatest leadership skills. Now that's a huge fundamental shift in the way you look at leadership. Because once you understand this, inshallah ta'ala, your youth groups and your communities can be a lot better if you understand this cause. So let's imagine you're in an Islamic society, right? You guys call it Islamic Society, Muslim Student Association? You got all these brothers. Who becomes the next emir of the Islamic society? The next president? Who is it? It's the guy with the longest beard. (laughs) This is the criteria. So they're like, who has the longest beard? Okay, measure beard. Okay, this guy, he's the most righteous. He's gonna be the next. So what happens when he becomes leader? The Islamic society collapses. Because the criteria was wrong criteria is wrong. You're looking for influence. Who is the most influential person in the community? They're the ones who are leader. So they're not necessarily the most righteous person. So usually there's this really cool kid, you know, with the long hair and stuff like that, you know, and he comes, sometimes he prays, sometimes he's coming, but he's friends with everybody. He's friends with the Muslims and the non-Muslims in the, in the, in the university. Everybody likes him. And he's got a, like a bad side to him too. He's got like a really nice car. And people have been spreading rumors about him a little bit and so on and so forth. He's the next candidate. He's the next candidate. Can you see how the Islamic society can zoom to the highest level at this point? So the, the brothers go to him. Brothers, you know, righteous, religious brothers, stuff like that. They go to him, we'd like you to be the president. He's like, first he might be hesitating and stuff like that. he's like, no, that'd be cool. I can do that. And now who does he call upon? He's got everybody in the community on his uh, mobile phone. They're all there. He calls all the punks. (laughs) And he says, let's all go pray in the masjid. I'm the president now. And they all rally against him. Everybody loves him. And he's a bona fide leader. The Islamic Society zooms and it becomes like your best Islamic Society in all of London. All of London. Of course, people start backbiting on him. Of course. We know that, right? <laughs> They'll start, I knew, remember, you know, when we were younger and in high school, he used to do this and that, Astaghfirullah. Do you think we should let him be the emir? And the backbiting will happen, and that will be his test. May Allah Subhanahu wa protect us and so on. Alright? So there was a boy, I remember there's a boy, I went to one city, I won't tell you which city, but he's like a soccer, or as you say, football. Superstar, Like, the kind of person that is getting a scholarship to a university so he can play for their football team. He's, like, that good. And this kid, when he, he's a, he's a kid, he was, like, just in high school, right? You say secondary school? He was in secondary school, and when he speaks, like, I'm raptured. He's such an amazing speaker. He, is like a full, he got scholarship. He's in a private school that's all paid for because the, he's such an amazing soccer player and he's an amazing Islamic speaker. However, he's got that silver side to him, right? There's a, there's a bad side to him. There's a good and bad side. He's, he's like influential. And I remember when I was in that community, this guy had come up to me and he was talking to me. Again, he makes friends with everybody. Every sheikh actually would know this kid. He's that influential, this young kid, but everybody knows him. Amr Khalid knows him, everybody knows him. And uh, he's talking to me, and while he's talking to me, these punk kids in the community, the ones with like, necklaces, <laughs> you know those necklaces that wrap around the neck and stuff like that? Where the guy's wearing the tight shirt and, and, the, and the beach body uh, shorts? They come up to him, they're like, Yay, Asalaamu Alaikum. <laughs> Every, <laughs> everybody's saying salam to him. And they're actually, like, they're giving their back to me and they're saying salam to him. I can't, like, everybody's coming out of the crowd to say salam to him. And he was telling me that the Muslim community, they actually, people started spreading rumors about him and they, and they said, you know, he's not befitting of a good role model for the youth, so they should not allow him to give any speeches in the masjid. And he was complaining to me about what the situation is. I said, you know, subhanAllah, if we were going to do a Maghrib in that city, I would, like, I would be willing to make this kid the emir. I would love to have him be the emir. A kid like that being Amir can move the whole message of Islam. Even if he had a bad streak in the past, he's huge and amazingly influential. And I went to the president of the masjid and I said, there's a boy in your community that you have misunderstood, right? You might think he's not righteous or something like that, but if you only tap his potential, he will bring all the youth into the masjid. They will all rally against him. If you push him out of the masjid, you're only hurting yourself. And so the reason I'm saying this and spending time on this is so you can understand that it's not just about a little click or a little clique that you have. You have to go beyond that. And look at leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. So the Prophet ﷺ said, shar <laughs> He said, the people will follow Quraysh in goodness. Whether they're, whether they're good or bad, the people will follow leaders from Quraysh. And so, all these leaders, right, we're saying Amr ibn al As, Mu'awi, All they were from Quraysh. They're Qurayshi. And they're going to be followed. They are bona fide leaders one way or the other. If they're good or they're bad, the people are going to follow them. And they were all of them amazing leaders. When the Prophet wa sallam, entered Mecca, he asked the people of Mecca, he said, What do you think I'm going to do with you now? Right Now that Allah SWT has granted victory, now is the time to execute all of them. All these years of fighting, all the commanders have been killed. They said in response, Akhun Kareem, Ibn Akhun Kareem. They said, A generous man, the son of a generous man. And the Prophet ﷺ said, The story of Yusuf. ﷺ, and you'll see the story of Yusuf coming up again and again through the seerah. And the story of Yusuf was revealed in Mecca. It was revealed in Mecca. And the Prophet ﷺ said what Yusuf ﷺ said to his brothers. لا تثريب عليكم اليوم يغفر الله لكم وهو أرحم He said, "There's no sin upon you today." لا تثريب عليكم اليوم يغفر الله لكم. Allah will forgive you. May Allah forgive you. وهو أرحم الراحمين. He the most merciful of the merciful. And the Prophet said, The Prophet said, "Go, for all of you have been freed." And the Prophet forgave everybody in Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ with his own hands The 360 idols that were there at the Kaaba The Prophet ﷺ purified the Kaaba of those idols And he smashed each one of them As the Quraysh is watching And the Prophet ﷺ saying قُلْ ja wa الْحَقُّ al That they say that the truth has come and falsehood has perished Falsehood by its nature was meant to perish um, Smashing the idols There was a person by the name of Uthman ibn Talha Uthman Ibn Talha was very harsh to the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca, and he had the keys to the Kaaba. right? So nobody could go into the Kaaba unless they took his permission. And so the Prophet, ﷺ, and he was harsh, and he refused to give it to the Prophet ﷺ in Mecca. And now on this day, the Prophet ﷺ asked for the keys to be brought. Uthman Ibn Talha gave it to the Prophet ﷺ, expecting that now his family will lose the keys. After the Prophet had entered the Kaaba, then the Prophet gave the keys back to Uthman ibn Talha. And he said to him, Haka miftahuka, ya Uthman birrin wa He said, Here are your keys back, O Uthman. Today is a day of piety and like fulfilling ties of kinship. Fulfilling ties of kinship. All of Mecca became Muslim, next battles that took place after this, which we're not really going to go into detail, is Hunain, Hunayn, the battle of Hunain. In the battle of Hunayn, the Muslims entered the battle, because they had such huge numbers, they were like, all this time they were always less in number, less in number, they went to Mecca with 10,000 fighters, now they have the Meccan fighters with them, they're like, today we're not going to lose by lack of numbers. And so they went to Hunayn, and they started losing. So it wasn't about the numbers, even though they had more numbers than the people of Hunayn, the people of Hanain fought and the Muslims started retreating from the battlefield. And the Prophet وسلم, was running forward. That's when he said, I'm the I'm the Prophet without lie, and ibn Abdul Muttalib, I'm the son of Abdul Muttalib. And the Prophet وسلم, ran forward, Al-Abbas was there, Abu Sufyan fought in that battle, and the Muslims after, you know, They had retreated and they were losing the battle. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed them and turned the uh, scales and they were granted victory in the battle of Hunayn. The kuffar had been prepared for that battle. The Muslims weren't prepared for that battle. But yet the Prophet sallallahu maintained his ground and the Muslims eventually were victorious in the battle of Hunayn. There's a really cool story that happened. Um, After they were victorious in the battle of Hunayn, they had a lot of war spoils. And they are giving war spoils, you know, the Prophet ﷺ, when they had the war spoils, he was giving like a hundred camels to, like say Abu Sufyan, a hundred camels to this chief of Mecca, a hundred camels to this, all this wealth and a hundred sheep to this person, people who just became Muslim the day before. And the Ansar, in the end, got nothing. Even though all these years they had been defending the Prophet ﷺ, they got nothing. And they were feeling sad for this distribution and someone came and told the Prophet ﷺ, said the Ansar, they're feeling sad. And then he said, gather them together. And when he gathered them together, and he gave them a speech, and he, and he spoke about the, the virtues of the Ansar. And then he said, by Allah, he said, are you not satisfied that the people go home with their donkeys, and go home with their, with their camels, go home with their sheep, and you go home with the Messenger of Allah? Are you satisfied? And the Ansar said, We are satisfied, O Messenger of Allah. He said that and the Prophet ﷺ said to them that some people that he gives them this wealth to keep them firm on Islam. And he said, but because the Ansar they are, they all these years they're firm on Islam, he said, then others, I you know, place their trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they'll be kept firm in, on their Islam. And so this wealth the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam distributed it to those people who just recently become, became Muslim so that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa taala would keep them firm on the deen. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam of the virtues that he said um, by him in whose hand is my soul lawla al-hijrah if it wasn't for the Hijra, I would have been one of the ansar. If the people would go through a valiant passage and the ansar would go through a valiant passage I would go through the valiant passage of the ansar. Oh Allah have mercy on the ansar their children and their children's children. The audience wept, these are the Ansar, they wept and they cried until their tears rolled down from their beards and they said, yes Ya Rasulullah, we are satisfied with our lot and share. And so they went home with none of the spoils of the war, but they went home with the Prophet So one of the cool things that happened in this, they had like prisoners of war and so on, and then this woman said, leave me alone, I'm the sister of the Prophet. They're like, what? I'm his sister." So they told the Prophet they said, there's a woman who's saying, you know, we need to let her go because she's the sister of the Prophet. So the Prophet uh, you know, brought her and her name was Shayma. And she said that they had nursed from the same wet nurse. Remember we were talking about Halima, when the Prophet was in the Bedouins. She was one of the girls that was there amongst, you know, in, amongst the Bedouin. And she had the same wet nurse as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi wa She was like, you used to ride on my back when you were a kid. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, what's your proof of this? And she said that, you remember you bit my ear one time? And she showed him the mark. He had actually scarred her on the ear from his bite. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam welcomed her. And he, uh, he was very kind and generous to her. And he freed her Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that was the battle of Hunain. All right, lessons for life. There's so many. Now when it comes to lessons, there's like lessons and lessons and lessons and lessons. This is like just raw skeletal of what the seerah entails. And then after that, inshallah ta'ala, I hope and pray that you'll be able to study the seerah more and more and more, extracting more lessons from it, inshallah. Right? The farewell hajj. In the ninth year of hijrah, Mecca had been conquered, Right? Conquest of Mecca, ninth year of Hijrah. So, ninth year, Mecca had been conquered. The Prophet sent Abu Bakr and a delegation of the Muslims to go perform Hajj and prepare the area so that the Prophet would perform Hajj. The Prophet performed Hajj once in his life. Performed Hajj once in his life in Islam. And other things like before, they used to do tawaf naked when the people would do this. So the men would be naked doing tawaf. Their tawaf also was like whistling and clapping. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, they used to whistle and clap as they'd go around the Kaaba. So Abu Bakr anhu, <laughs> obviously no mushrik was allowed. Anyone who associated partners with Allah, no one was allowed to do hajj anymore, be allowed to be enter into Mecca anymore. And Surah Baraa, baraa, which is like a disallegiance with the mushrikeen was revealed, and the surah was revealed. It's the surah that doesn't begin with Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. It just starts, Just so you know that the Qur'an, he sent Abu Bakr عنه, to take this and to recite it in hajj so that everybody would know. Any treaty with the mushrikeen is now cut off. There is no more treaty. Someone was actually asked me, one of the questions was, um, there's a hadith, in which the Prophet said, The hadith in which the Prophet said, I've been commanded to fight the people until they say La ilaha illallah Rasulullah. If they say it, then their wealth and property will be like sacred. So now the question is, this is actually specifically, um obviously it could it could extend beyond, but for the Arabs. But if we're talking about non-Arabs, right, Christians, Jews, and so on and so forth, and the Muslims would go, they have one of three choices. When the Muslim army would come to a, to like, um, a tribe, we're not saying countries here, because nobody owns countries at those times, it's just whatever tribe is stronger. A lot of people think, oh, did he enter Geneva? Did he enter Germany? You know, did he cross the border? <laughs> obviously they're thinking in current times and those times it's just tribes that are either going to attack the prophets or the Muslims are going to you know protect themselves they had one of three options they either become Muslim they have that option you can become Muslim nobody's forcing them you either become Muslim or you pay the jizya tax the jizya tax is a lot cheaper than whatever taxes you pay now right So they could stay Jewish, they could stay Christian, and it's like a service fee. They would be defended by the Muslim state, they'd live in safe and security under the Muslims, and they pay the jizya tax, and that's paying for the army. In fact, in the history, Islamic history, at some points when the Muslims couldn't defend the non-Muslims, they would give them the jizya tax money back and say, we cannot support you and we cannot defend you, here's your money back, you're on your own. So it was like a service fee as well. There are services to be provided for the jizya tax that they're paying. If they, chew, if they don't want to pay the jizya tax, then they go to war. The Arabs are different. The Arabs, they either become Muslim or they go to war. There's no, thir- there's no jizya tax option for the Arabs. Have you ever seen, like, um, Saudi people, whenever you see, like, a Saudi and they're not obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Do you get people like that here in London? Do they come up? You go to like a shisha bar or something like that, right? And, and now this is a Muslim, right? Who goes to the shisha bar, who sees someone from Saudi Arabia, and they're like, astaghfirullah, what are you doing in the shisha bar? <laughs> right? And then they're, they're both in the bar together, but this guy's from Saudi Arabia. And this is like, it's natural that the Arabs, subhanAllah, when they're not practicing Islam it's like 10 times worse. Because so many people be, are, become misguided when they see someone like that not practicing Islam. then you know, it becomes a huge fitna for the other people. Right? If you saw huge groups of Arabs not practicing isnaf, it's a huge fitna, and that's just the way it is. And so it cannot be accepted from them for the Arabs except to be good Muslims. It can't be accepted from them. And so they were either Muslim, if they don't choose to be Muslim, then they fight. And that's specifically for those Arabs there would be no two religions in the Arabian Peninsula. It's just Islam. And so the Prophet some of them chose to fight, some of them expelled or something like that, but there would only be Islam in that region. And so the Prophet after that ninth year, and they recited Ali رضي الله recited the, the, um, the surah, bara'a means like a disallegiance, إِلَى الَّذِينَ عَاهَدْتُ al to those who had like a, a treaty in the past, that the treaty will end at this specific time. And then that's it. There's no more treaty with them. And that's uh, Surah Bara'a. So that was in the ninth year. In the tenth year, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi sent the message out that this year he would be performing Hajj. So people came from far and wide to follow the footsteps of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi and witness the Hajj of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi And a beautiful example, a group of people came to Medina and they said to the Prophet Sallallahu he said, who are you? They said such and such. And then they said, who are you? And he said, I'm the messenger of Allah. And then a woman raised her child. This is such a beautiful moment. She raised her child so the Prophet ﷺ could see the child. And she said, ali the Hajj. Right? Is there Hajj for this child? This is like the fiqh of Hajj. Does a child, if they perform Hajj, do they get the reward of Hajj? And the Prophet ﷺ said, Naam, walakil ajr. He said, Naam, they do have Hajj and you will get the reward for the child performing Hajj, taking them for Hajj. I said it's a beautiful incident because remember we were talking about the children? Remember we were talking about like in Sejda, they were there and they're in the masjid and so on and so forth? In all of the ibadat you will find that the muhajini and the Ansar, they educated their children in these pillars of Islam. So whether it was fasting Ramadan, they would have their children play with the kids so they wouldn't get, you know, focus on the food and they would be teaching them to fast. Hajj, the woman's taking her child with her so that she can teach the child how to perform Hajj. And so on. The pillars of Islam. Salah and all of these things. So the Prophet Sallallahu went out for Hajj. There in Hajj he gave a khutbah. And in the, in the khutbah, the way he was speaking Sallallahu Alaihi he spoke as if it was a farewell. And so it, it was called the Farewell Hajj and the Farewell Khutbah. Farewell Sermon, the Farewell Khutbah. And so of the things that the Prophet Sallallahu said, I believe you have the khutbah there. Other things that he mentioned in his speech Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he spoke about brotherhood. So the hadith of the Prophet can we just uh, the. Other things that he mentioned was an Arab is no better than a non-Arab. In return, a non-Arab is no better than an Arab. A red-raced man is not better than a black one except in taqwa. Humans are all Adam's children and Adam was created from dust. All right, this is years, 1400 years ago that the Prophet Sallallahu is teaching this to people. In the khutbah, he spoke about assisting the weak people. So the weak people, remember what I said about activism and social services and so on? In a society, there will be weak people. It's the duty of the Muslims for the sake of Allah to support them and help them, Muslim or non-Muslim. That is the duty of the Muslim, is to support justice. Assisting the leaders to implement the Islamic rulings. He spoke about equality between men, as we're mentioning here. He spoke about turning to the Quran and Sunnah. He spoke about women as well. You know when people are talking about women's rights and so on? Let me just read you what he said, sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He said, "'O people, fear Allah concerning women. Verily you have taken them on the security of Allah and have made their persons lawful unto you by words of Allah. It is incumbent upon them to honor their conjugal rights and not to commit acts of improp- uh, improp- uh, propriety. which if they do you have authority. Chastise them yet not severely.'" If your wives refrain from impropriety and are faithful to you, clothe them and feed them suitably. Now the Prophet speaking about the women's rights in Hajjatul al-Wada' and the khutbah in general is taking different segments of the society, abolishing the old Jahiliya rules, the revenge killings have now come to an end, usury has come to an end and that's it. There's no taking back any usury, no taking back any revenge killings. And then the Prophet at the end of his speech, he said that you're going to come back on the day of judgment, on the day of resurrection, and you will be asked whether I fulfilled the message or not. So what will you say to Allah at that time? And they said, we testify that you have fulfilled the message. You have passed on the message. And the Prophet raised his hands up, and he said, Allahumma fashhad, pointing to the audience. He said, Allahumma fashhad. There was over 100,000 Companions of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that did hajj with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then the famous statement of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam at the end of the khutbah, he said, Allah al Let the person who is here and witnessing this, tell the person who hasn't witnessed this. And subhanAllah, here today, we know what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said because someone was truthful to that commandment of the Prophet. Keep passing this on. Keep passing this on. If you look at the legacy of Muslims, history of the Khulafat and so on, Islamic world, if you look at a map, it goes out to a certain distance and then it stops. Right? It goes out to certain countries and whatnot. This is like the Islamic world and then it stops. Why did it stop? As time went by and the Muslims changed and, you know, bid'ah started coming in and so on and so forth, years and years after the Prophet there came a time where people didn't get the understanding that the message keeps going on. And inshallah ta'ala, hopefully you revive the message that the message of Islam keeps moving forward. And it's part of your duty that for those who haven't heard, those who have, are present and have heard it, that they pass on the message to those who aren't present and you're um, passing on the message those other people. One of the saddest things that I hear when someone takes in a maghrib class and they come to me afterwards and they say, oh, I love the Al-Maghrib class. I want to thank you and this and that. I wish I had heard earlier about a maghrib To me, that's like a knife in my heart. When they say, I wish someone had told me about this. You know, not four years after a Maghreb's in their town, someone actually told their brother to come to attend the class or told their friend, and then when their friend comes, they're like, why didn't you tell me earlier about this? Whether your friends are going to seek knowledge or not, that's not in your hands. What's in your hands is, did you pass on the message or not? Did you pass on the message? So you see that you don't have to be the one teaching them, but you can be the one encouraging them, making sure that everybody at least got the opportunity and they got the invitation to learn more about the Prophet ﷺ and more about this blessed Deen of Islam. Let me tell you something about, something that I noticed in Medina University. All the courses that we took, every single course, from the bottom of my heart, every student would love that course. There's no course focus on Islam, that you will study it and you'll be like, oh, this is boring. I don't want to study it. Every course is exciting. Sometimes you have a really bad teacher and he's got to work really hard to mess it up. But still, all you need to do is just go and study a little bit and you'll love the course again. All the courses I loved except one. I'm being honest here. One of the courses in in, uh, in Medina University, it was like everybody hated this course. That course was? What was the course? What do you think it is? <laughs> What's that? No, no, no I said anything related to Islam we'd love They taught us in second year Sharia What? No, I love philosophy Not, not a philosophy, psychology They taught us History of Saudi Arabia <laughs> and, and everybody's like You know we're not going to get rewarded for this. <laughs> you know, nobody made intention. Why? Why are you teaching us? We don't care. You know, Just give us our stipend. We'll go home. We don't care about your history. And then, um, and then subhanAllah. I Actually, this is something with history of the, um, Saudi Arabia. Everybody was confused. This subject was a new subject they added. And everybody was mad and angry. and Nobody wanted to study it. And what I did is I went to the library. There's a library in Medina called Arif Hikmat Library. It was an old Turkish scholar. Uh, from the time of the Ottomans, who had a huge collection of manuscripts, some of the oldest of the Islamic books, and he donated it to Medina. The Araf Hikmat Library is in Medina. You wouldn't know about it until you had a class like History of Saudi Arabia, and you actually go and find out. I went into the library. It wasn't from Araf Hikmat's collection, but there is a journal of a British colonialist who, at the time, you know, in the Saudi Arabia, history, he wrote a diary of what he did in his journeys through Arabia. You know, you're talking about like such a long time ago. And it was such an amazing diary. He was like, the Arabs took me... In, um, and he's writing in Arabic, he learned Arabic and he was going, for, he went to Medina, he went to all these places, met with like Arab tribal leaders and so on. And he said, you know, the Arabs took him in the desert on camels and they abandoned him unless they gave him more money and stuff like that. And I was like, they still do things like that. <laughs> 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 They're trying to get more money from you, it was taxicab. Right? And so even that course in the end, I said, mashallah, even that course I loved. I learned a lot from it, mashallah. So what I'm saying is this, don't miss any Al-Maghrib classes. Take my word for it, it is impossible that you will study something in Islam and you come out regretting that you learned that. That's not possible. Instead, the opposite is true, Sheikh Khalid's class is coming up. Guaranteed, guaranteed, if you don't take the class and you hear anybody speak about it, you will feel regret at the deepest level. At the deepest, deepest, deepest level. That you missed out on that class. That torchbearers class is the stories of the scholars. We've been talking about the Prophet. That class is for, that's why it's called torchbearers, people who carried the light and the message of Islam, so that we would learn as students of knowledge the etiquettes of the people of knowledge the etiquettes of the people of knowledge, and not only just the regular people of knowledge, but the greatest scholars of Islam and how they carry this message of Islam. You want to carry the message of Islam? Now you've got to find a strategy on how to do it. Why not study the lives of those people, the greatest people that walk this earth from our scholars, and see how they did it, so you too, inshallah ta'ala, can follow the same. And you have one of the best al-Maghrib structures that we have, Sheikh Khalid Basuni, inshallah ta'ala. And I wish, even as I was thinking, I'm like, how could I attend it as well? Insha'Allah Ta'ala. It's one of those type of classes. You don't want to miss the class. Alright. The last days. Alright, sorry. Before the last days, when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi in the farewell khutbah, after he gave the khutbah, then he went to Arafah and on the day of Arafah, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala revealed the verse, الْيَوْمَ أَكْمَلْتُ Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala says, اليوم where Allah subhanahu Wa ta'ala revealed this verse on the day of Arafah after the Prophet gave the speech, the khutbah of Arafah and they started praying Allah subhanahu Ta-A'la revealed this day I've perfected your religion, completed my favor upon you And have chosen for you Islam as your religion. A lot of people are wondering what religion should they choose. And alhamdulillah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala already chose what religion for you. So you don't need to go through that process. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen Islam. And it's just a matter of a person submitting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what he has chosen. Right. so the last days. Remember when we said that a person's first words, usually people remember the first words, right? a lot, and people remember the concluding words. So it's an interesting book of uh, what were the last words that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi would say to the companions. So of the, the last commandments that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said, that there would be no more mushrikeen in the Arabian Peninsula. In the Arabian Peninsula, there would be no more mushrikeen. Again, there's no two religions in the Arabian Peninsula. It's only Islam. Of the things the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi mentioned in his final days, was that they should not take his grave as a place of worship. Like not take it as an idol to be worshipped. The Prophet spoke about people keeping firm on their salah. Keeping firm on their salah. And reminding the people and advising them to establish and maintain their salah. He also spoke about holding on tightly to the Quran and Sunnah. And that so long as a person holds on to the Quran and Sunnah, they would never be misguided. During these last days, the Prophet there was another battle that was taking place with Byzantine armies. And that's when the Prophet initiated the army of Usama ibn Zayd, who is 18 years old, and he led the army. That was at the time of the Prophet and they were... You know, they didn't agree with the leadership of Usama ibn Zayd. They wanted maybe someone more senior. But the Prophet ﷺ insisted on Usama ibn Zayd. During these last days as well, the Prophet ﷺ visited Uhud and visited Baqiyah. Aisha ﷺ is saying, during the middle of the night, the Prophet ﷺ asked her permission. And he went, and you know, she saw him, he went to Baqiyah, the graveyard Baqiyah, which is near to The central city, and then he went to Uhud as well on another occasion and visited the graves, giving his salam to the people of the grave and saying, InshaAllah, soon we will be joining up with you. The Prophet, in one of the hadith, he said, Verily Allah has given a slave to choose between this life and the hereafter, and that slave has chosen the hereafter. Right? So it's just a slave, and you know, someone who's chosen between the dunya and the akhirah. And it's a very simple statement that the Prophet Sallallahu said. And the companion is just sitting there. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is crying profusely. And the, and the narrator of the hadith is saying that you know, he's just talking about someone who's given to choose between this life and the hereafter. And Abu Bakr is crying, like crying so much. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said, may our mothers and fathers be sacrificed for your sake. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said He said He said if I was going to take Someone as a khalil Like a close sincere friend A close sincere friend Like this is it only one person He said it would be Abu Bakr And he said But rather my khalil is Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala And the Prophet ﷺ said all doors to the message that be closed except the door of Abu Bakr. The narrator of the hadith, they didn't know why Abu Bakr ﷺ was crying. But then he said they realized later that the Prophet ﷺ was talking about himself. So when he said that a slave was chosen between this life and the hereafter, he chose the hereafter, only Abu Bakr knew that he was talking about himself, that it was time that he chose the hereafter, that he was leaving them and the narrator saying, and he was the most knowledgeable amongst us, his best friend. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, because there's this issue of the Khilafah, right? And there's so many signs that the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam, without designating Abu Bakr عنه, is telling them that he's going to be the next Khalifa, there's so many signs pointing to Him desiring Abu Bakr to be the leader. The most fundamental of these things is leading the Salah. Whoever leads the Salah is the leader, right? So there's not a separation. You know, normally in a masjid, we have the imam and we have a president. This is not the case in the olden days. The imam is the leader in their dunya and in their religious affairs. He's the same person, whereas we make a separation, they understood that the person is leading in their akhirah affairs, and their dunya affairs. And so the Prophet ﷺ, in his sickness, in which he died in ﷺ, he said, مُرُوا Bakrin بَكْرٍ bin Nas.' Let Abu Bakr lead the prayer. Like tell Abu Bakr to lead the prayer. You know how some sisters, again, you can connect with this. Sometimes the Imam is praying and you can't hear him pray. Right? You can't, you know, he's not reading loudly. Does that happen to the sisters? I think it happened at Asr time, right? Aisha is telling, that when oh, he said, let Abu Bakr lead the prayer, he said, no, when Abu Bakr leads the prayer, he starts crying. And when, this is talking about her dad, her father. said so he starts crying, and then we, in the sister section, we can't hear him pray. Let's get Umar to lead the prayer. Because Umar reads really loudly, and we can hear him praying. They, the women wanted Umar عنه, to lead the prayer. And the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi insisted that Abu Bakr lead the prayer. And in fact, and, and the Prophet ﷺ insisted, insisted, and at one point they didn't tell Umar, they told Umar to lead the prayer. And the Prophet ﷺ heard him leading the prayer, he was like going out of consciousness, in and out of consciousness. He heard Umar radianu leading the prayer, he got very angry, sallallahu alayhi Wasallam, and he said, Ya wa wa al mu'minun illa abu bakr. He said, Allah and his messenger and the believers refuse anyone except Abu Bakr. And Umar didn't know this, but Abu Bakr was the one leading the prayer. A woman came to the Prophet wasallam, and you know, she was speaking to him, and then later he said, come to me at such and such a time. She said, what if I don't find you? And the Prophet wasallam said, if you don't find me, then go to Abu Bakr. Meaning that he would be the person representing him after his death. Sallallahu In the sickness that he died in Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, as everybody was, you know, gathered around the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, a woman came in. This woman, when she would walk, it would remind the people of the walk of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. When she would speak, they would start crying because when she said, inna alhamdulillah, she said it just like her dad. And she was Fatima, radiallahu anha. So she came in, the the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam asked, his wives, if he could be nursed in these final days in the home of his beloved Aisha And they agreed and she, he was in the home of Aisha. Fatima عنها, came in and she and the Prophet sallallahu drew her closer and he spoke to her and she started crying. And then after he called her again and, and, you know, and spoke to her and then she started laughing and, and smiling. And then afterwards Aisha عنها, said, what did he say to you? And she said, I'm not going to you know, share the secret of the Prophet. And then after he passed away, وسلم, she shared with Aisha what had happened. So that nothing was hidden. This is actually something, you know, some people say later that the Prophet hid some special knowledge and didn't give others. That's not possible. Islamically that's like haram to even think of that. That means that the Prophet didn't fulfill the message, and he didn't pass on the message. There's nothing hidden. And Fatima told her afterwards, all the knowledge is exposed, there's nothing hidden. She said that the first time the Prophet spoke to her, he told her that normally Jibreel comes to him in Ramadan and reviews Quran with him. He said this year, right, and Ramadan was just a few months before this, he said this year Jibreel came and, and we recited the Quran twice. Like extra clarification that we recited twice. And he said that my only guess is that my time of death is near. And so she started crying at that. And then the Prophet Wasallam, when she cried and he called her back, he said to her that I hope that out of my family members, you'll be the one that catches up with me most soon. And indeed, Fatima ﷺ, she died six months after the Prophet Alaihi Wasallam. The Prophet ﷺ, when he died, what was the inheritance or what was there? The Prophet ﷺ died in his house. You would go to the house of the Prophet ﷺ and see what was in the house. The Prophet ﷺ had a donkey. He had a sword and he had a piece of land that he gave away in sadaqah. And that's it. And, what, and the Prophet said that whatever the prophets give away, uh, leave behind is sadaqah. And so even the, uh, that land Abu Bakr radiAllahu anhu took it and gave it sadaqah, according to the words of the Prophet The last place the Prophet ﷺ was, um, actually, before uh, uh, about two days before this, there was a salah in the masjid. And as we know, the, the home of the Prophet opens up to the masjid. It opens up to the masjid. So Abu Bakr anh, is in prayer, and the Muslims are behind Abu Bakr anh, and, and they know that the Prophet anh, is sick. So the Prophet, anh, in the middle of their prayer, he opened the curtain and he started smiling. Seeing the Muslims, Abu Bakr leading them in prayer, all of them are in prayer and he's, um, and he's smiling. And they became um, so happy. They said, alhamdulillah, like they're in prayer and there's all this like shuffling going on and and this like, this um, movement. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was like, you know, what's going on as well? And then he started backing up so that the Prophet could lead the prayer. And the Prophet pointed to him to continue praying. And they said his face was illuminated like a full moon. And they thought that the Prophet that said that that's it, his sickness is over and that he would be all right. And the Prophet closed the curtain and he was not seen publicly after that. He was not seen publicly after that. That was the last time the Prophet was seen publicly. It was in the masjid. It was in the masjid. The Prophet, in those final days, is about two days later, in the lap of Aisha Anha, his beloved. He was sitting in her lap and while he was sitting in her lap, she said that the Prophet ﷺ passed away between her chest and her thighs. The Prophet ﷺ was reclining on Aisha. Her brother came in and he had a miswak with him. So Aisha ﷺ said, She said to the Prophet, ﷺ, She saw him looking at it and, and she said, Would you like it? And the Prophet ﷺ said, Yes. And so she brought the miswak and it was hard, right? It was a hard miswak and she took it and she softened it for the Prophet Wasallam. so she put it in her mouth and then the Prophet Wasallam used the miswak. so the last thing to enter his mouth was the saliva of Aisha عنها, as she said and he's using miswak, and the Prophet Wasallam said his final words Allahumma fil al-a'la and she said that earlier I had heard the Prophet Wasallam say that Prophets before they die they're given the option to either continue in the life, basically, they're asked permission before they die. The angel comes to them asks for permission. And so she said, When the Prophet said, Alama fir rafiq al a'la, she said, I knew at that point he had chosen the hereafter. Al rafiq al a'la, rafiq means like companionship or friends. Al a'la means the highest, the highest companionship, which is Jannatul Firdaus. It's the highest level of Jannah with the Prophets. With the Siddiqeen, with the Shuhada, with the Salihin It's the highest level of Jannah And it's called Al-Rafiq Al-Ala And so the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam raised his hand up And he said Allahumma fir-Rafiq Al-Ala O Allah in the highest companionship And he kept repeating it until his hand went down Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he died Now, the death of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam At this point News had spread that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi was dead Now Umar anhu said to everybody He called out That whoever says That Muhammad is dead I will execute them I will kill them And we said when Umar Radiallahu Anhu says he's going to kill someone What does he mean? He means he's going to kill them And so nobody would dare stand up to Umar Radiallahu Anhu and He will kill them If they said that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi was dead so someone went to Asun, It was an area where Abu Bakr anhu lived And they went and told Abu Bakr That the Prophet sallallahu alayhi was dead And so Abu Bakr anhu Came galloping on his horse The people had gathered Umar radiallahu anhu who is like um, Challenging anybody That any, nobody dare say that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi Is dead And he passed that crowd Went into the home of Aisha radiallahu anha. He saw the Prophet him covered in a blanket, covered with a blanket. He lifted up the blanket, kissed his forehead, said and he said, Tibta wa that you're blessed in life and in death. And he said that Allah is never going to join two deaths upon you. He said, "As for this death, it's done." Abu Bakr عنه, he covered him up. And then he stepped outside The only person who dared stand up for Umar Umar radiallahu anhu is, is threatening people and so on Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu told him Sit down He said, yeah Umar, sit down He said to him, it's this And Umar radiallahu anhu refused Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said Ala rislika, He said, slow down, sit down And Umar radiallahu anhu refused And so Abu Bakr anhu didn't continue with Umar He stood up himself he said, إِنَّ الْحَمْدَ لِلَّهِ And after he said that, أَمَّا بَعْدْ فَمَنْ كَانَ يَعْبُدُ مُحَمَّدْ فَإِنَّ قَدْ مَاتْ He said, Whoever worships Muhammad, let them know that Muhammad is dead. And whoever worships Allah, let them know that Allah is alive and will never die. And then he recited the verses, وما محمد إلا رسول قد خلت من قبله الرسل أفإما تأو قتلا قلبتم على أعقابكم وَمَن يَنْقَلِبَ عَلَى عَقْبَيْهِ فَلَن يَضُرَّ اللَّهَ شَيْئًا وَسَيَجْزِي اللَّهُ الشَّاكِينِ the verse that we mentioned in the Battle of Uhud that, there's no, uh, that Muhammad is nothing more than a messenger. Messengers before him have come. mata, If he dies, or is killed, اِنْقَلَبْتُمْ ala akabikum, Will you turn your backs? This verse, the companions, عنهم, they said, it was as if they had heard it for the first time. They knew the verse. And as we said, the battle of Uhud, this incident took place. They said the sound of the crying amongst the companions, was like the sound of like a tea kettle, the wheezing of a tea kettle when it's boiling. As everybody started crying. And Umar radiallahu anhu, he said, I could feel like my knees buckle. From the impact of knowing that what Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was saying was the truth. That he was dead. If you remember at the beginning of this class, I started by saying, Muhammad is dead. Don't you remember that? And I said that there's going to be a different feeling at the end of the class. What you're feeling is just a little, little, little glimpse of what the companions, radiallahu anhum, you have just spent like a few days just going over some of the stories of the Prophet They lived their lives. Their family members had died shaheed in the path of this deen. And so you can imagine the impact that had upon them on the death of the Prophet. ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ is dead. But his Sunnah lives on. And the deen of Islam is there. And so long as you hold on to that Quran and Sunnah, you will never be misguided. You will never ever be misguided. Wallahu ta'ala alam. I hope and pray, inshaAllah ta'ala that you can continue it is my goal that when you study something it is my goal that you continue studying that this message of Islam isn't just in one class and then you stop studying and it isn't just in you know you learn just a little bit and it's over you have to keep studying and keep learning and learning and learning your whole life you're going to be learning and gaining more and more and you're going to be sharing that with other people Insha'Allah, ta'ala hopefully we can turn things around and do some amazing things for Islam, for the Muslims, and all of humanity. insha'Allah. Jazakallah khair. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Astaghfiruka wa atubu alaika.